All I could ever remember was wanting to grow up and be like Indiana Jones one day. The thought of following in the Blackman family tradition of army straight out of high school, then an honorable trade in the blue-collar world, just never sat right with me. It was tough walking from the pump and into Tom Greeny's gas station, just as 97 forked off from Highway 378 in Camden, South Carolina. Tom watched me, always quiet and respectful, and I saw that the Free Times mugshot had disappeared from the countertop. I wondered if Tom had seen me walking in and moved the stand behind the counter. Tom was a kind man, and I had never heard anybody say a crossword about him. It was more his son, Jerry, who made sure that the citizens of Camden saw my mugshot posted all over Facebook. My boss, a blacksmith, who worked the southeastern circuit of horse shows and races, had called me up that very day. The very day that Jerry had posted that damning photo. My eyes blasted out, cheeks sullen, and my face that looked like someone had run sandpaper across it. Don't worry about coming out tomorrow, my boss had said. Reputation to keep and we all make mistakes. He'd consider bringing me back on board, you know, just as soon as I got it all straightened out. Except Jerry on Facebook. His memes took over with all the malevolent purpose of an AI that had escaped a lab and was bent on world domination. An application at DuPont Chemical Plant went unanswered. And so on and so on till my life had turned into a gray tapestry of alcohol, when, for most of my life, I never even drank, and intense gaming sessions on Clash of Civilizations. The arrest, the job loss, the 40 cans of beer every two days, but I suspect it was the gaming in the end that drove my wife away finally. My old friend and cousin Rick told me to wait for the news cycle to just die down, Everything would be forgotten in a few months. Then I could move somewhere else, get a job, start fresh again. The problem is it never really went away. The careful drive up Highway 97, leading out of the city limits of Camden, was punctured by an ever-increasing wood line as the houses that dotted the landscape became fewer and fewer. I glanced down at my gas tank, the first time in a year, I had seen it filled all the way up. For the first time, I wasn't paralyzed by anxiety when I checked my bank account. In January of 2020, I pleaded guilty on two counts of grave robbery and one criminal conspiracy. All charges eventually rolled up into one charge of attempted burglary. My plea deal was time served and a hefty fine. The problem as the court saw it, for my rather lenient sentence, was in the simple fact that the grave I'd been digging around in, in the hot summer of 2019, it didn't appear to be owned by anyone. I admitted to Rick in private that when I was caught, it wasn't the first time I'd done this. Rick asked, why? 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 I was so smart, he said. In college during the dig in Turkey, I could have gotten a full ride to a Ph.D. in archaeology. I would have been like my childhood hero, Indiana Jones. But it was out of country on those digs that I learned how lucrative the black market was for archaeological sites. With the skills I'd acquired in the field, 
I took back to the States I had hooked up with wealthy patrons who'd pay good money for artifacts recovered from old graves dating back to the Revolutionary and Civil War periods. I dropped out of college in 2017, got a job working for blacksmiths in Camden by day, and by night, I plied my real trade up and down the entire East Coast. The blacksmith job was great as we traveled frequently, allowing me the time to practice my corrupted skills under the dense darkness of forgotten cemeteries. Life was going pretty smooth until I was caught and arrested. I wasn't angry at Jerry either, and in point of fact, I had him to thank for my sudden turn in prospects because, in between his posting, memeing, it appeared as though someone had seen my mugshot. Someone important in hidden circles. The kind of group with loads of money and even deeper secrets. On Saturday in February of 2020, right after my plea, the postal worker came up to my door. I told him that I didn't know the mail delivered way out to Cassett on the weekend, to which he only smiled and said he was working some extra duty. The package he set in my hands contained only a single flip phone. It was the old-style Motorola, the ones where you had to extend an antenna and that could only text and call with no internet capability. Turning the yellow phone over in my hands, I noticed that it came with a sticky note. It read, You might want to hear what I have to say. I'll call tomorrow after 10 o'clock at night. I can't tell you if the voice on the other end of the phone the next night was foreign or not. He had a polite, even sympathetic tone, and promised that if I could keep secrets and fulfill the job, that I'd be rewarded handsomely. He didn't tell me what the job was. He explained that I would receive a very limited set of instructions and follow them step by step until, at the very last minute, the final objective would be revealed. It was the mugshot they'd come across, he said. His boss's boss was very pleased to read my indictment because he could tell, based on the items taken during my arrest, that this was certainly not my first rodeo, despite what I told the authorities, and he was sure that I would attack the coming job with vigor. The first Monday in April of 2020, about the same time the COVID lockdowns really got started in the South, they sent me about $2,000 via WhatsApp. More was to follow, but best to break it up into smaller payments so the feds wouldn't get too concerned. Shipped to my trailer over the course of a few days in nondescript boxes, a roll of steel cable, clamps, digging devices, a pickaxe, two shovels, battery-mounted lamps with red lenses. So finally, here I was, driving on Highway 97, headed about 10 miles outside of Camden, to what the locals refer to as Old Camden Highway, the original location of Camden itself some 100 years ago. Having grown up in the area, I'd always heard rumors about an even older cemetery, supposedly far off Old Camden Highway, way up in the woods and not on any map. Nevertheless, a very popular spot for ghost hunters and paranormal podcast type. My new employer knew just where it was and texted me GPS coordinates merely an hour before with explicit instructions on how to proceed. The text read, 
involve no one else. Dig at the exact spot we provided until you come across an old oak box. When you find it, remove said box with the provided engine lift and immediately put the chains around the box and secure the ends with the padlock. Do not disturb any of the other graves. Leave at once as soon as you've recovered the box. The rest had been an address. I was to drive over to North Carolina. Afterwards, I'd receive a series of payments for the next two months. The money promised and so far delivered was astounding. All in all, I'd be $50,000 richer in a few months for a mere hour's labor. The sun was nearly below the horizon by the time I parked my truck by Old Camden Highway. A steep grade led up over a hill, thicketed by cherry and dogwood trees, a rarity in this region of the county, mostly populated by young pines. I saw also that getting the engine lift up the steep grade was going to be a challenge, but the cables and pulleys provided by my employer was self-explanatory. Scaling the steep hill, I had secured the pulleys, and all I needed to do now was pull the end of the cable, and I'd have the engine hoist dragged up behind me. It was now dark, and the clouds in the sky came together, blocking out any starlight, and the humidity in the air was thick like a blanket. Using my GPS, shipped this morning, I was led to a place about a hundred feet from the top of the hill. A dense patch of dogwoods, surrounded by deformed fungus, swayed heavily as distant thunder rumbled far away. I took out my headlamp and affixed it to my head, freeing up my hands, which I found were shaking. No matter what, I couldn't screw this one up. No matter what happened. God, if I got caught, I shook my head vigorously, and I told myself when this was over, I'd buy Rick lunch. Hell, I'd pay for him and his family to take a nice vacation. They'd know old, crazy Eddie cared about them at least. The fungus in the trees became thicker the further I walked into the grove. Bits of broken stone and sunken graves told me that this place was known, at least in certain corners, and not totally forgotten. I estimated that digs had taken place here at least a decade ago. The air was thick with a mulchy, almost compost grossness. Here, looking at my GPS, here is where it was buried. What was it? Treasure? I started to dig, and soon had to go back down to my truck and retrieve my pickaxe. After another three hours of back-breaking digging, my muscles fed by sheer anxiety, I finally hit something solid. Wiping away dirt, I could make out solid wood. Another hour of curses as I maneuvered the engine lift over the dig site. Soon the engine hoist was over and under the box. I estimated the box to be five feet by four feet, a massive load that nearly tipped the engine hoist as it rose from the many tree roots that had grasped at it for God knows how long. The box wasn't just old. It had to be freaking over 200 years old. I knew from my previous studies neoclassical boxes from the late 1780s, and this one certainly had the shape and decorations to match. The wood was oak, and strangely enough, there was absolutely no sign of rotting or waste whatsoever. 
it was as though someone had made an exact replica of an 18th century tea caddy box and blew it up to incredible proportions to the monstrosity that I now saw before me. I had to dismiss the idea the box was over 200 years old. No way it could sit out here for that long and be in any shape whatsoever to recover. The long and grueling work to get the very heavy box from the site was over just as soon as a steady downpour of rain started. I jumped into my truck cab before remembering the last bit of instructions. That I was to chain the box and secure it with a padlock. I suppose the reason was that they feared the box needed some sort of structural reinforcement. But why put chains over it? At any rate, I told myself I would just drive out of town and wait until the storm was passed. Then, then I would throw the chains on. The wind nearly blew my truck off the road as I sped back down Highway 97. The trees swayed violently against the lightning back vision in front of me. I instantly regretted not spending a portion of the $2,000 payment on a new set of tires. No way I'd ever make it over the North Carolina border in this condition. So, I decided to head for home. I told myself I could park my truck in the large storage shed in my backyard, hide the vehicle and its content out of sight until the storm passed, then, maybe, head into town and get some new tires. Who knew? I had a feeling I could text my employer. Maybe they would pay for it. I lay in bed that night in my creaky single-wide trailer, the wind beating it from every side as the rain leaked through cracks in the ceiling. I thought of my truck now secure in the shed out back, and of the chest. No way I could sleep, I told myself. I worried deeply of not heading to the North Carolina border. Last thought I had before I drifted off was of my employer's voice. So hard to pin his accent if you could even say he had one, carefully laying out my instructions. I had forgotten to turn off the lamp beside me, but it really didn't matter when the power was cut off from the storm. The day's events blended together in a kaleidoscope of fast-motion reels behind my closed eyes. There was light all around me, and I was back in the grove of dense dogwood, covered in reddish thick fungus that I had seen everywhere, sucking the life out of the trees, their precious sap being drained away. I followed the snaking fungus deeper and further into the grove until I watched as a pulsating fungoid growth disappeared into the ground beneath me, the same exact spot where the chest had been buried. When I awoke, I thought for a moment the rain had come inside. I was so soaked with sweat. Outside, the sun was out, and the sky was a piercing blue steel, almost oppressive in its perfection. It's so hard to describe that day. I glanced at the shed and walked outside without putting my shoes on. I didn't care if my instructions were not to, under any circumstances, open the chest. My employer's voice, so full of sympathy, yet was threatening, couldn't reach me here. 
I stopped inside my truck's cab for a second, discarding the flip phone with its ten missed calls and eight unread text messages. I'd left the engine hoist at the dig site. They were supposed to offload it in North Carolina, so I hopped up on the truck and used a flathead screwdriver for a few minutes, till finally the box hinges groaned as I pried it open. I saw at once that although the outside of the box was in supreme condition, it was the inside where the wood rot had really taken hold. The smell that emitted from that dark interior was enough to make me gag, and I fell backwards off that truck. But soon the stench took on a new scent slowly, changing if at first ever so teeny, from rot and filth to a sweetness, then an oily, rosy quality. It was kind of like the first time I'd ever smelled freshly baked birthday cakes, a prying yet familiar quality. My revolt turned to yearning, a deep need to touch something familiar, and I peered into the chest. Inside, I saw a worn-down metal object turned green from corrosion and time. My God, could this chest really? Is it really 200 years old? But no, the object was a crucifix, and beside it a teeny metal box, so faded I couldn't tell if it was original iron or steel, silver or whatever. But what grabbed my attention most was what lay next to the items. I thought at first it must have been a mummy. The corpse was perhaps four or four and a half feet long. People had been shorter way back when, and could have been taller if not for the dried state of the body. The body was leathery, dry, and what I thought were wrappings of a mummy I found was its thick, strange skin, almost scaly. Something was wrong, too. The proportions of the remains seemed out of whack somehow. The skull almost bird-like in its appearance. Long jawline was canine-like, and great flaps of dried, leathery, rotted ears clung to the top of the head. The jaw was gaping open, giving the entire scene an eerie spectacle, like whoever it was had been buried alive and was screamed and screamed. I fell off of the truck bed and winced in pain. Suddenly images shot into my mind. There was heavy breathing. A thick, gross scent was filling my nostrils. I was being grabbed by powerful hands. Recovering from my daze, I jumped back up onto the bed of the truck, reached in, and flung the crucifix against the wall. The metal box received the same treatment, and as it shattered on the floor, decomposed herbs scattered about as it spilled its contents. The neighbor's cat. Max, I believe his name, was coming sniffing around the shed close to midnight. 
He was drawn to the food bowl I'd left out and was completely oblivious to the metal cage's door until it sprang shut behind him. I used to hate sleep. I've never had great difficulty getting to sleep, but my dreams are always a torture chamber of failed jobs, confrontations, and I awoke feeling like I'd barely slept at all. But not anymore. Ever since bringing the chest home, I've been blessed with the most wonderful, what I can only call visitations. She is so lovely. She has that beautiful, otherworldly feminine presence I've never encountered before. It's like every little boy's first uncorrupted memory of his mother and a dreamy, Disney-like princess experience. She comforts me now at night. She'll sit right beside my bed at night, just rubbing my head. The arrest, no job, the memes, Facebook, and she tells me everything will be okay. The next morning, I open the chest and remove small bits of fur and flakes of bone. The leathery skin on the corpse has a faint, barely discernible moisture now and the bone on the jaw, once gray and brittle, is now white with dots of cartilage budding along its hinges. The flip phone was ringing its little heart out and pinging me missed text messages, so I smashed it with a brick. My cousin Rick came by. Oh, it must have been four, five days after I'd brought her home. He was pounding on my trailer's cheap aluminum door. When I opened it, he didn't even bother asking if he could come in. I tried explaining everything to him. You mean to tell me you dug up a grave? A grave, Eddie? The police? My parole? The memes on Facebook? Had I forgotten? Rick had asked me. Who were my employers anyway? Had I even bothered to ask any questions? Were they mafia? I scoffed. The mafia, I explained to Rick, weren't interested in buried relics. You mean, whatever this chest was, whatever you brought home, Rick had accused me, and you promised them that you'd drive it to North Carolina, and you haven't? That was five days ago, Eddie? Rick was nervously pacing as he had to exert effort to navigate the clutter in my den. I was in for it. I had made a bad deal. Did I know that he had managed to pull some strings for me at DuPont? He could get me a floor job there. Thanks, Rick, I had told him. Thanks, but you need to leave. You need to leave now, please. As Rick drove down the winding road, I walked over to the edge and set up more metal cages along my driveway. The way things are now, I couldn't even remember what day it was. Each time I opened that chest and breathed in the smell of scented flowers and fresh waterfalls, 
She overwhelmed me with her presence. She was letting me see more and more of her, too, in my dreams. I was running after her in the dense forest, her womanly curves teasing me from underneath a silky nightgown. I can't be sure, but after recovering the remains of the two dogs, I think I may have seen her move. I wasn't afraid any longer and grazed my hands along her now moist skin, still recovering, healing from her ages-old slumber. A sudden fear for the past couple of days welled up within me. I had to load everything up soon, as the need to get out of Cassett now filled what was left of my mind. Drive up Highway 1, just head north and keep going, and going till I reached the mountains. I could hide out, just me and her. Day by day I placed my offerings in the chest, and waited a respectful few hours before returning. Despite the figure I saw in my dreams, her creamy skin, softness from another world, what was slowly reanimating in the chest appeared different. I had been right in my initial estimates, that the person may have been taller in life, but had shrunk down due to dehydration. Well, this person was also grossly misproportioned. It may have been after the Boston Terriers I picked up two counties over, but I thought I could make out a short torso, long, very long, in fact, arms and hands. God, the fingers were flexible like rubber, almost, and there were six of them on each hand. I can make all this out now because each time I opened the chest, I could see that she had changed positions. Sometimes when walking away, I thought I could even hear shifting from inside. Stupid Rick again. He had texted me on my regular phone, demanding to come up. He wanted to talk. More crap about getting on the right track, I just knew it. All I wanted to do was sleep. My phone was buzzing madly. I'm sleeping, I told myself. Urgent. Wake up. The voice was inside my head now. Was Rick, was he actually inside my house? I looked up, thrown out of sleep. Her face was fading. Rick stared down at me. But as I emerged from my sleep, no. No, the commotion wasn't a dream. And this person standing over me wasn't Rick. Strong arms grabbed, pinched my biceps, throwing me out of the bed. I hit the wall, leaving a dent in the ugly gray. The tall man in a brown pullover put strong hands around the nape of my neck and led me like a dog through my cluttered living room, his boots stomping empty beer cans and kicking bags of cat food out of the way. Outside, a short man in leather jacket said nothing, but looked at me with solemn eyes. 
After breaking gaze, I saw the headlamp to Rick's car, just over the winding driveway, flash out. Stupid idiot, I thought. At least Rick had the good sense not to play hero. There was no winning with these guys. I just had that feeling. Maybe, maybe Rick had known. I'll never know. I wish I would have checked my phone that night. He was trying to call me. But I'd like to think my cousin and best friend would always remember me. Two were just too many. I don't know why I got up, drove out to Eddie's place. I hated going up there. We were just so close. I wanted to drag him out of that place and bring him back home with me. Let him wake up and we'd have gone to Waffle House and gotten his issues straightened out. None of this bullshit about working with these weirdos or whoever they were. But all I could do was watch. Eddie didn't look like he put up a fight. The big guy drove Eddie's truck out to the front, and those guys, their eyes when they saw that chest or whatever Eddie had dug up, they were on that thing in two seconds. Then the short guy jumped off, ran over to an idling Lincoln, and got out a little bag. Digging inside, I think he pulled out a bottle and charged a syringe from it. Together, he and the large guy, they opened the chest and reached inside. I could barely make out something inside. It was trying to sit up or get out, I'm not sure. It was black and scaly, and what looked like an arm reaching out of the box with horrid fingers flexing against the Lincoln's headlamp, sending a sickening silhouette against the side of the shed. The man with the syringe, he reached inside, and the commotion ceased after a minute. The short guy had the chains he pulled out in a lock. The big guy slammed Eddie's head against the hood. Then he took his limp body over to the chest and dumped him inside. The two men slammed the chest closed, and they worked like madmen with those chains, wrapping it around the chest. I waited. God, I tried calling 911, but the cell reception. A Ford pulled up, and I saw two more men get out. There was four of them now. (laughs) I didn't have any chance. They loaded that chest up in the Ford truck. I was afraid to start my car, so I waited in the woods with it turned off. They left soon after securing the chest, but I was scared to even move. After waiting for what seemed like hours, I walked slowly down that seemingly never-ending stretch of driveway to Eddie's trailer. I stood alone in his living room, and to this very day, I still wake up thinking that I'm in that room, and Eddie is seated in a chair. We are both years in the past, when we were in college together, and there is Eddie, smoking his pipe, talking about his latest archaeological dig.